Welcome to Saving Cities. I'm Jack Story, and in each episode, a member of our team hosts a conversation with an expert in a place-related field. That could be anything from accessibility to zoning and everything in between. Today's guest is Shane Phillips. He's the author of The Affordable City, which is out now on Island Press. It's a fairly comprehensive overview of housing policies in the United States. Where we're at, what we're getting right, what we could do to make it stronger and more equitable. He's also the Housing Initiative Project Manager for the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. Oof, it's a mouthful. Anyway, let's get to it. Thank you, Shane. I appreciate you for taking the time uh, to talk to me about your new book, The Affordable City. Um, and I wanted to start by saying one of the things I noticed in the last decade of my career in that industry and in, in what we're doing uh, is that the most effective people often tend to be the ones who tripped into it uh, <laughs> and reluctantly in a lot of cases, right? So it, it's grueling and uncelebrated work. And certainly the financial compensation for taking the repeated beatings uh, isn't anything to write home about. And your book, which I speed read over the weekend, is a fantastic kind of showcase of someone who has clearly become obsessed with a topic. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. Uh, that, and it's a complex topic already, right? But it's, it's grown every decade in, in severe complexity to the point where it barely makes sense to, to those of us inside of it half the time. Uh, but the book was very thoughtful and serious and rightly heavy, I think, on the policy discussion. Um, but it's also funnier than any book I've read on housing, so kudos for that. There's some <laughs> good, good uh, lightheartedness throughout. Um, and If you've ever seen my Twitter feed, you, you would understand. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know when dealing with something that's as serious as, as housing and affordability. Um, it's a welcome change to have a little bit of that humor in there. Right. Because I think mm -hmm. it's a heavy topic. Um, and you expressed in your introduction that the book can be read in a single pass, but it's also kind of a field guide to return to. And I think that that's a, that's a really fair assessment, but I wanted to get started by asking you, how did you trip into this? Cause it's not where you started. Right. Yeah. Um, and I definitely did trip into it. And yeah, thank you for having me on first off. Um, and, and for that kind of opener question here, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't graduate from high school, uh, for like strange reasons, <laughs> came back, uh, after deciding, you know, what? actually I want to be a doctor and, got my associate's degree and then transferred to University of Washington, got my degree in biochemistry, worked in a tuberculosis lab, um, was doing that till I was in my mid twenties, almost late twenties. And um, it was when I had gone to University of Washington that I first moved to a city. I'd always lived in the suburbs up to that point, drove a car from the day I turned 16 and a uh, car died right before I moved to Seattle. And so I, I, ne I never bought another one and I moved there without a car and realized that I had, even though I'd always, always hated Seattle um, growing up, when I moved there without a car, it turned out I loved it. And everything that I hated about it was just driving there. Um, right. Once you got rid of the car, it was a wonderful place to be. And that kind of got, it, it introduced me just to the idea of like cities generally, honestly. Um, I don't think I had heard of the field of urban planning until my mid twenties. Like, um, I just remember I was working in this tuberculosis lab at the university of Washington medical center and like applying to, and even interviewing at medical schools and realized that I was spending my lunch break, like re reading Seattle transit blog every day, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, I kind of just totally changed course. And I was like, this is clearly what I'm actually passionate about. And unlike medicine where, you know, I had an interest in policy as well as practice, 
but you can't go anywhere. You can't have any influence for such a long time going down that path. Sure. Um, you know, becoming a doctor, kind of gaining stature in your field, felt like you could have much more of an immediate impact in planning. And, and you know, as I implied, I came to this through transportation. Um, and that was what really interested me initially. Uh, but this, the story I tell, it's kind of two parts. One is just, I came to recognize more and more how central housing is to everything, including transportation, and how if you can't get the housing and land use correct, it's really hard, if not impossible, to get the transportation policy correct. Um, and the other thing I saw, maybe especially because I was coming from Seattle and then now I'm in Los Angeles, these are places that have invested a lot of money into transportation. And you know, for all the flaws in what they've pursued, um, I feel like they're moving in the right direction or trying to do so. And on housing, in contrast, it just feels like we continue to move in the wrong direction. There's been progress more recently, but you know, if you looked at this five years ago, it just felt like things were getting worse and worse, and we were doing nothing to solve the problems that we had. And so it felt like a place where I could be a little more impactful as well. So I think that's, that's really what brought me to it. Well, you certainly have immersed yourself with the number of policy recommendations and overviews in this book. Uh, but yeah, it is, it's weird to, to hear that story because it sounds like so many others that I've heard, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's very common. Um, I was talking to a contemporary of yours, Angie Schmidt, the other day, and she was talking about that that was not her plan either. And trans biking was kind of her uh, gateway into the whole planning field. And now you guys are both tackling massively different and equally are greater significant uh, issues, which is really commendable. Yeah. It's funny because we actually, um, really the first like entree I had into this world, um, when I was applying to grad schools, deciding to like shift toward urban planning, I started my blog way back then in like 2012, 2013 because I needed some kind of evidence that I cared and thought right. about these things. I had no record of, of classes or anything or job or anything like that. And so I started that and, um, you know, maybe six months later, Streets Blog, which Angie used to work for, mm -hmm. was uh, sponsoring a few scholarships to the Congress for the New Urbanism Conference in Salt Lake City. And this was like 2013, 2014. And I got one of them. And so I met her there and, and a few other great people um, who, you know, it's still in contact with today, but that was like really the first group of people I ever met um, in the, in the planning world. That's awesome. That's a good start. It's a good starting place. <laughs> uh, so to kind of launch into the, the book, the book is called the affordable city. Uh, it is a housing heavy narrative about what we can be doing better. Uh, what we're doing right in some instances and what we can expand upon and then some things to kind of not worry about. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the overarching approach? So I guess what I mean by that is writing something that's this massive in scope, that's tackling this much policy. Uh, how did you, how did you want to make sure that this was packaged so that it was readable? Yeah, it was. And, you know, hopefully I succeeded. It was honestly the, the writing itself at the time I was doing it felt like like a brain dump as much as anything else. It was just mm -hmm. like I had so much in my head that I've been working on and thinking about for years and years that this was a way to kind of put it all out there in one place and try to organize it in a way that made sense. And I, I didn't start writing it until I had in my head sort of a thematic or organizational structure to it. And that's what became the three S's of supply, stability, and subsidy, um, which all the policies kind of fall under one of those three headings. And I just posted on my blog a couple days ago at betterinstitutions.com um, some excerpts from the book, including the introduction. Um, but I, I kind of tell just very briefly the story of really the genesis of this book in some ways, which was about four years ago when um, I, I wrote a blog post about a project in Hollywood here in Los Angeles that was, it was like a 200-ish unit tower um, that was replacing a 40-unit uh, rent-stabilized apartment building hmm. with, you know, a mix of residents, some of whom paid pretty high rents for what, you know, 
not high for Los Angeles necessarily, but high by most people's standards, maybe $1,500, $1,800 a month. Um, and other people, because they had lived in the same unit and were rent stabilized, and they'd been there for a very long time, they might have been paying like $800 a month. And it was the story of we were getting those 200 units. 40 of them were going to be income restricted. So they were all going to be, you know, say seven, eight, $900 a month for 55 years, which is much better than a rent stabilized unit because when someone leaves a rent stabilized unit, it goes right back to market rate. Right. Um, and so if you're looking at it purely from a just regional perspective, we got more market rate housing, which is good. And we got, 40 rent stabilized units replaced with 40 income restricted units, which are a better, you know, version of affordable housing. And so if that's all you cared about, you would say, this is a great thing for the city. The problem is that the 40 people who lived in those rent stabilized units weren't the ones who were going to get to benefit from those income restricted units. Um, some of them might be eligible, uh, but if you made too much, you, would, you wouldn't even be eligible. But even among those eligible, they're probably going to be hundreds, if not thousands of applications for those 40 units. And it's a lottery to see who gets them. And so the, the thing I recognized, and I'm not nearly the first person to recognize this, was just that you could have something that would be good regionally, but you'd have a lot of individuals who, who were harmed in the process. And we couldn't just overlook that. We couldn't have like it couldn't just be this creative destruction, you know, they'll find they'll, they'll land on their feet kind of thing. Cause like right. the reality is they, they may not, um, especially in a place where prices are so high. And, you know, some of these residents might be paid as much as $20,000 because of uh, a local law that requires some kind of compensation when you're displaced for a redevelopment. But if you're paying $800 a month for your rent, and the market rate for a similar unit now is 1800 that $20,000 is not going to carry you very far. And so you have objectively, your, your life is objectively worse because of this redevelopment. Um, and we can't ignore that. And so that was really the, the genesis of this. And then it was, it was figuring out how, how you enact the policies that will ensure that people are protected in those scenarios. And that doesn't even mean that they are never displaced for redevelopment because in a place like Los Angeles that is built out, you do have to rebuild things bigger. Um, it's really having the policies that say, if you are displaced when it is necessary, um, we're going to compensate you in a way where you are as good off or better off than you were before. And that's something that the resources absolutely exist to do without mm -hmm. even requiring public subsidy. It's just about designing the policies in that way. And it's recognizing that if you're going to strengthen tenant protections and, and displacement protections and so forth in this way, um, such that certain redevelopment sites become less viable now, you have to offset that by increasing the capacity to build elsewhere, ideally where the impacts to existing residents, vulnerable households, people of color, low-income households are less. So building more in wealthier communities, wider, more exclusionary communities here in Los Angeles. And you know, this goes for a lot of places. But that was that was kind of the the overall structure. I know that's a that's a a lot to cover, but that's that's where it came from. And it was just recognizing that you have to do all of those things or you're leaving certain people behind. And when you leave certain people behind, they're going to be fearful and they're going to oppose the changes that, you know, broadly we, we sure. definitely need to make. Sure. Sure. And so to that point, I think you did, it, it was an aggressively even uh, distribution between, I think <laughs> the, the different factions of, of the affordable housing world. Uh, I'm likely to many people's independent frustrations here and there throughout the book. Uh, yes which you kind of address and I love, right? Because that's part of this is that having the hard conversations is critical for this moment in time, especially this moment in time. Um, and so you, and you couch it and you mentioned the supply stability and subsidy mm -hmm. are kind of the way that you, you broke this down. And I wanted to spend a, consider, a considerable amount of this time talking about each one of those and kind of why you determine those are the three to really focus on? Well, I think I've actually, so it was interesting after I kind of came up with this categorization myself, I realized someone else 
Um, there's like an organization, like a three P's organization. It's they call it like production, preservation, and protection. I think, and it's sort of a similar idea. I I actually like mine a little more because I think the none of those really cover subsidy. They don't cover the funding side. Um, my thinking for these three was basically, and you know, my initially it was just kind of a hazy notion and kind of developed over time, but. Supply is really about like, especially in a growing city, um, and I recognize, you know, being in the Cleveland area or Columbus area that you might have different kind of pressures. Um, but in a lot of coastal cities where demand is just so high and population continues to grow, you have to have enough homes, like as a base condition. If you don't have enough homes, just physically and economically, um, you're not gonna have the space, people are gonna crowd in. Um, demand is going to exceed supply and that's going to be reflected as, as higher prices. Um, there's no getting around that. Stability though, is just recognizing that there's, there's like a, we have to be concerned with the dignity of having a home as well. And, you know, I just see people living in communities who have lived there for, you know, years, decades, who you know, Inglewood here in, in the Los Angeles, in Los Angeles County is a good example where they're building the $5 billion um, stadium for the right. Rams and Chargers and they're building an entertainment center. It's like all this stuff going on there and the like pace of gentrification that happened there um, and, and rents going up and, pri and home prices going up and they don't have rent stabilization even in Inglewood or didn't anyway. Um, and so it's not the fault of the people who live in those communities that it suddenly changed and now they can't afford their home. Um, and frankly, it's not the, it, it wasn't the result of the property owners actions that led to that either. Generally, you know, as the landlord, I just got lucky if, if, you know, Balmer or whoever's responsible, it's not Balmer, Crunky or whoever uh, is responsible for that stadium. Like, Maybe I should get some benefit from that as a property owner, but just to be able to capture all of it for myself at the expense of my tenants, there's something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. um, housing is just too important to people's lives to be left purely to the market in that way. So we have to have some form of protection. Um, and between supply and, uh, and protection, supply and stability, I think of it as like supply is really about focusing on the region mm -hmm. and and trying to stabilize prices and create new affordable units and so forth. And basically it's about how do we create additional benefits? Stability is more community level, individual household level and asking how do we prevent harms? And both of those questions are really, really important um, and can't be uh, you know, dismissed. And then beyond that, the subsidy comes in where you just have to recognize that, you know, Housing is expensive to build. It's ex especially expensive in coastal areas, um, but you know it's always going to be among the most expensive housing in any given area. And so, there will be people who can't afford that, no matter what you do. Um, and there will be people who will not, at least immediately, benefit from tenant protections, rent control, um, so forth, no matter what you do, because they can't get into a house in the first place um, or can't you know, pay the rent on time consistently enough that they'll be able to enjoy those protections indefinitely. And so the subsidy really needs to come in to support the people who those other policies can't. But importantly, I think you have to try to support as many as you can with the supply and the um, stability policies so that you have enough money left over. <laughs> uh, you don't, you know, here in Los Angeles, more than half of renters pay uh, more than 50 or more than 30% of their income on rent. If we're going to treat all of those people as needing a subsidy to live in the city, we can't, we literally just can't afford that. We can't have one half of the population subsidizing fully another half. Um, and it doesn't need to be that way if we have the right supply and stability policies. Um, but until we do, that's kind of the, the position we're stuck in. We're like, we, we're spending a lot on housing, um, public money, and it's it's not nearly enough, and it never will be. I agree. So uh, one of the things that occurred to me was when you're talking about housing construction costs, 
only a couple of years back when I was doing this for a neighborhood here in Columbus called Franklinton, um, the cost to build a house and people would always say like, well, you got $250,000, you know, how are you only building one house? <laughs> and the thing is, well, yeah, that's $250,000 is I can build maybe one and a quarter houses. And that's in the Columbus market. And that's three years ago. Um, and so, yeah, the, the numbers, I think, to the general public often can seem rather large and they, they're not insignificant, but that same house that we're going to build for $200,000 is going to sell for, uh, and these were single family houses to be fair. And they were, mm-hmm. uh, non-rental. So they were, they were sale units, but the highest we were going to sell them at the time we were building them then was 160. That's the highest a house had sold. So we're losing $40,000 right off the top as a, as a developer. Um, and we're a nonprofit development corporation. So that was our, we're in the business of that, but yeah. um, you know, a million dollars builds four houses. That's a lot of money yeah. for what is uh, outwardly does not appear like a whole lot. Yeah. And, so and by I, our definition of need, you know, the people who might be eligible for these homes, like I said, any of these properties that are built in Los Angeles, if you have a hundred affordable units, you're going to get a thousand or 5,000 applications. Right. Um, and when they cost, you know, 200, $300,000 would be a great deal here. Um, you know, we're talking $500,000 a unit right. here in Los Angeles. And I, I can't do the math off the top of my head, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we have 4 million people in the city of Los Angeles alone, 10 million in the county, probably 30 to 40% of those earn under $50,000 a year, um, or even under like $40,000 a year. So they'd be eligible for some form of low income housing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, you can't build literally hundreds of thousands of fully subsidized units. Um, you have to find a way to let the market help who it can um, so that the money you have to spend on the people who really need it can go as far as possible. It's crazy. So talk, talk a little bit more about uh, rental, because I think this is something that gets mischaracterized a lot. Rental is a huge portion, especially on the West Coast, on the coasts in general, uh, but even in places like Cleveland and Columbus, right? Renters make up a huge swath. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does this kind of approach to policy benefit renters? If we can kind of talk a little bit about the boring but but important statistics of that. I might need a little more clarification on sure. that. But I mean, big picture... Um, you know, on the supply side, this is the the more challenging case to make just because it's it's not so direct. This is basically the argument that if you have enough housing, um, tenants are not competing for a small number of available apartments, right. and that helps moderate prices. Um, you know, tenant protections, it's more clear. Like once you move in, you know that your rent is only going to go up 3% a year, say, or that you can't be evicted um, for any reason other than like non-payment of rent or violating, you know, reasonable uh, lease terms, that kind of thing. Um, so those are those are like the the clear benefits. Did you have something more specific in mind? Um, no, but I did want to, I guess, go deeper into kind of the tenant rights component of the policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was reading, I think a lot of what comes up is the morality, right? And so, and you frame that instability. Um, and I wanted to, to get a little bit deeper on your take on tenants rights as it relates to policy planning moving forward. Is that a better way to frame it? Well, I think... I think to some extent, what I what I said earlier still holds that the people, if you're renting in a home, um, 
I guess maybe I can take a step back and say, I think there has been um, historically in the U.S. and and to be clear, this is primarily for white people, um, this expectation that you rent when you're younger, but eventually you get to buy a home and escape all the nastiness and you know sure. being uh, you know subject to whatever your landlord wants for like weird people, you know, and um, unreasonable rules and, and late fees for being a day late or whatever. Um, I think that used to be kind of true that you could, you might have to put up with it, but eventually you could buy a home because they weren't that expensive and, and long-term is actually a better deal anyway. I think there's a recognition now that that's just not feasible. It's, it's literally never going to happen for, for a large group of people at least if they want to stay in the same, you know, not even just like neighborhood, but city, state, um, as they're currently in. And so, again, you have to find some way to at least, I guess with tenant protections, the, the point I make, and some people don't like to hear this, I don't think tenant protections make things better. I think what they do is keep things from getting worse. I think really only supply and subsidies can make things better because that's where you're building new things. It's you can capture value to create affordable units. Tenant protections are really about not getting evicted, not having your rent raised beyond a certain point. It's not, you know, rent control is not you pay $1,000 now, next year you pay 970, the year after that you pay 950. It doesn't make it better, right? right. It just stabilizes. Um, and that's really important. Uh, and it's just, we have to, find that balance where we say, you know, if you own a property, if you're a landlord, yes, there should be some upside to that. Obviously you're taking a risk. Um, but right now it feels like it is, you get all the upside and what we're seeing right now to some extent, um, in, in some places anyway, is that a lot of the downside is actually covered for you. Um, you know, you're getting assistance from the federal government and so forth. And to be clear, a lot of landlords are in deep trouble right now because our federal response has been so inadequate. But um, it just tends to be that all of the upside seems to often fall on uh, fall toward the the landlord, and all of the downside falls toward the renters. And there has to be some kind of rebalancing there um, that we we tend not to. I, I think there hasn't been the political power for that, in part because everyone not everyone, but many renters have historically seen themselves as, as just temporary or temporarily, temporarily sure, embarrassed sure, sure. Uh, homeowners and to take the temporarily embarrassed millionaires concepts a step further. So I think that's, I think that's part of where this comes from. And, and now there's just this, this very large group of people who they don't see themselves really even as aspirational homeowners. And, you know, we can maybe get into other reasons for that and maybe why that's a good thing that we are perhaps moving a little bit away from homeownership just because I don't know, I, I'm very ambivalent about the subject of homeownership. I own a duplex in Los Angeles. I'm very lucky. Um, my tenant lived here before I moved in um, and I replaced a, a homeowner occupier. So I didn't have to displace any, any tenants or anything like that. And my tenant is, uh, is rent stabilized and it's been a great investment for me, but you know, Every dollar I make off of this property in terms of appreciation, at least beyond inflation, is coming at the expense of whoever buys that this property from me. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it is only going to get harder and harder the more I benefit. Um, and even beyond that, I just, I think about someone who bought a single family home in Cleveland in 1970 sure. versus someone who bought one in Palo Alto in 1970 those individual buyers have had very different trajectories. You know, yes. the person who bought in Cleveland, their home was probably worth less or the same, but not adjusted for inflation. Um, in Palo Alto, their home that they bought for $50,000 or whatever is now worth three or 5 million. Um, they didn't, they were not responsible for that. And, you know, we, we treat housing as an investment um, because we've, done very little else as a country to give people some kind of mm -hmm. you know, backstop retirement nest egg, whatever. 
Um, but it, we can't, I, I just can't comprehend how we can continue a system where something that you need and is so important, your home, um, we treat as an investment. And if you like just have the bad luck of being in the wrong city um, because of the industry you happen to work in or whatever, you're just screwed. And these other people are phenomenally wealthy and we're just okay with that. Like something is wrong there. I agree. And I, that hit a little bit more on what I was hoping to get. And so thank you for finding the answer in my <laughs> question. Uh, but it's, you know, thinking about things like generational debt, certainly I am a part of a generation that has assumed way more debt um, than I would have cared to through student loans um, and, you know, these bookend recession depressions. Uh, so I'm fortunate enough to have bought a house but it took everything I had. And I certainly, my mortgage accounts for a healthy amount of my monthly income. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm very lucky, right? So the idea of this being a generational problem, and you, you talk about it a little bit, that kind of starting with, I think, millennial generation, but certainly now going down every decade or so, the debt's getting higher and the drive or willingness to purchase a house is getting lower. Right. And that's where I think the renter, my, my poorly worded question on renting came in because I think it becomes apparent that that's going to be either the primary option or the desire, right? That might be the desire uh, is to not own and be a little bit more mobile, uh, especially with work becoming more remote. So how do you, Shane, talk about pushing policy forward from an affordable housing perspective while noting that how housing works is fundamentally shifting now, it seems like every five years or so, uh, as new generations of folks are getting into the, the market. Well, I do think this is, this is a little bit of a different answer, but I think it's important to bring up that any solution to housing affordability challenges, especially in higher cost cities, really anywhere, has to acknowledge how much of people's retirement um, and wealth is tied up in their homes. And so it can't just be a solution where all housing is going to get cheaper. Um, I just don't see how you ever build the political support for that, where, sure. you know, even now most people do own their homes. And if you're your answer to the affordability problem to them is your home is going to be worth less, um, maybe even less than you bought it for. It's, you know, I can understand why people would be very uh, concerned about that and oppose right. that. And so I, I do think ultimately that this is where things like zoning can really do a lot. Um, you know, the reality is that you can both create value for property owners and um, and create value, capture much of that value for public benefit. And so, you know, if I have a series of single family zoned parcels where you can only build one unit per 5,000 square feet of lot, um, and that's a block away from a light rail line, which we have in Los Angeles in abundance, unfortunately, um, you know, those homes right now are worth over a million dollars. If you rezone so that each of those parcels could house 10 or 20 units, the value of those parcels is going to go up. Um, and so the property owner will be, you know, they might not be happy uh, because they might not want their neighborhood to change. But in the grand scheme of things, having your property be worth a couple hundred thousand dollars more maybe um, and still being free to sell or not, you know, because you own it. Right. Uh, that's, that is a small, small harm. And it's really only like a, I don't know, like it, it compared to someone being displaced or evicted. It's just like, I, I have no sympathy. <laughs> right. It's just um, more inconvenience than anything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a very well compensated inconvenience. Right. And so you can increase that value of their property that becomes you know, 10 or 20 units and, you know, the, the 
the trick here is that the total value increased, but the value per unit you can build, the value of the land per unit has dropped precipitously because you used to have, if it was a million dollar property with one unit, that's a million dollars per unit. And you don't have to build a new building necessarily, although often they get torn down and built bigger. Um, but now you've got maybe a one and a half million dollar property where you can build 10 units and that's $150,000 per, per developable unit on that site. Um, and so, you know, the new units that you build, they might cost another three or 400,000 to build. And you may be talking about 600,000, $700,000 condos or apartments or whatever, but that's in comparison to what was a million dollar home that only has one person and as a condition of that rezoning and redevelopment, you might say, and also one or two of those units have to be reserved for low income households. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, this is something where at least financially, um, everyone can win. And I think that's, that has to be kind of the core of the solution and whether it's privately built, whether it's publicly built, something I frankly don't really care. Um, I think the reality is that we just don't have the like, capacity either, you know, in terms of like organizational or funding to just have mass social or public housing. Um, but as you know, in my book, I recommend we spend a lot more on it. Um, but we can do a lot with, with market as well. And as I said, um, there are a lot of people who can afford these homes. And so like, let's build the stuff for them, um, keep them from moving into lower income communities and displacing people uh, and raising prices even further and get some of that value in the form of value capture for affordable units and other benefits that we need. You talk a lot about low income housing tax credits, uh, <laughs> Liatech, and you probably uh, know more about than me. I, yeah. And I hate it. Um, <laughs> no, that's not fair. Yeah. I have a, I have a complicated relationship with it. It is a complicated program. Is, yeah. Um, it's made a lot of rich people richer, and it's debatable in certain areas, as far as I'm concerned, how much good it has done. But you did a compelling job of convincing me, at least, that it's possible to use those funds more efficiently and effectively. But you talked about a massive increase in those funds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, as far as HUD's concerned, I, I think... Um, Housing choice is the the top spend, right? But Litech is not an insignificant amount of money that funnels out of there. I think it's like around ten or fifteen billion a mm -hmm. year. Yeah. So, and you're talking about what? A hundred billion. I think yeah. it should be. Yeah. And so, let's talk a little bit about a program that is is flawed in a lot of ways, but has the bones and the, and the framework to be. And do you, maybe you want to explain, I can too, but you're, you, you worked in it. So maybe you can explain just like a little bit of why that is for the listener. Cause I think that's important to understand. Um, like it, it builds a lot of housing, but maybe in a very inefficient way. Right. Yeah. The pass through is where I had the most issue. And so having to work with a third party agency to kind of oversee the process Number one, it complicated the entire thing, but it also added cost, right? Because what a lot of people don't talk about in any government subsidized program is that they're admin fees. And so the number that you hear is nine to 20% different by the mm -hmm. time it even gets to the, to the organization that's going to put them to work. And LIHTC is, is a pretty huge offender in that particular regard. And so the wheels of low-income housing tax credits are more easily tripped up. I, I'm trying to think of the best way to kind of frame it. Um, well, I know that here, what they say here in Los Angeles, and I think this is basically true everywhere, is one of the things that they just have to cobble together more funding sources, and that takes time. Yeah. And, you know, that means carrying costs that, you know, everything just gets more expensive. And because it's you know, government funding, you tend to have prevailing wage or other kind of labor requirements, local hire, maybe yep. um, things that are good, but add cost for sure. And so, you know, you end up building quote unquote, low income housing that costs more to build than the market rate housing. Um, 
but of course rents for a lot less because, but only because you've thrown a lot of money at it. Right. And the rent is not as low as I think many people assume, right? Yeah, that's true. That, that number moves up and up. Um, and with Litech, in my experience, the end rents were not nearly what I wanted them to be. And it wasn't feasible to have them there uh, with the expenses. But again, in that process, the expenses become so enlarged versus what they would have to be if we just got a direct pass through. Um, yeah. So I just, I had, I take issue with it, but the expanding it tenfold sounds risky. Uh, <laughs> well, based and, on and I, I think this is in the book. It's, it's, this is, this is a risk of having so many things in the book because I forget what I've included and what I've just thought about or written on Twitter. <laughs> it is a um, lot. It's a but lot. I, I do think that I discuss LIHTC, the low-income housing tax credit, is a very indirect way. It's, it's basically creating all these middlemen um, and basically making it so that you can only build affordable housing when it gives tax cuts to banks and large corporations, like, which is just a why. Um, and I mean, the answer is it was 1986. It was the Reagan administration. I think that's the short answer, but um, it's what we still have today. And the reason I know a lot of people who work on LIHTC and a proposal I make pretty frequently um, that they always push back on is we should just get rid of LIHTC and replace it with just a simple grant program just get rid of all the middlemen and just give money to build the housing. Um, and I think that's a good idea. Like just if you ignore politics and everything else. Um, but I recognize that one pretty compelling argument in favor of LIHTC is it's funded through our tax code basically, um, or I don't know if that's the right uh, phrasing, but rather than through our budget directly. Um, and so you don't have to like make an allocation in the same way every year. And so you're not as vulnerable to the whims of Congress. And, you know, that's, that's proven to be the case so far. It's been around since 1986. It's still here. Um, I don't think it's really been cut. I think it certainly expanded from where it started. Um, it's creating about a hundred thousand low income units a year right now, but that's in juxtaposition to the 1970s when we were subsidizing 300,000 units right. a year and you know pre litech and i think maybe what we call a subsidized unit might have been a little looser back then um cuz 300,000 just sounds so high even to me but that was 300 it was you know three times more when our country had 100 million fewer people and so you know the resources we're allocating to this are just not what they used to be and, you know, the need is so, so clear. And I think part of, part of the way this was envisioned on the, on the government side was, well, we're also doing these housing choice vouchers, what, you know, used to be known as Section 8 vouchers, still is known by many people. Mm -hmm. um, and that will help people get into market rate housing, like lower end market rate housing, but, but like private market housing. And it's true, but... I think then you run into the problem of like, then, but then who is building the new housing? Um, and we have a you know, decent amount of housing being built for very high income groups. Um, and you know, there's a lot of reasons why it's only being built for that for the most part, um, as opposed to maybe if like the 60th percentile uh, rather than 80th, 90th where it's at right now. But I think if you have funds going directly toward constructing housing for what is essentially just a totally different market, people earning, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 a year. Um, that is not who new market rate housing is for Nope. in a place like Los Angeles. And so you're not really competing them out of the market necessarily. All housing, it's all one market and it is related. It's not totally separate. I don't mean to imply that, but I think if you're a market rate developer and you see someone is building, you know, 50 low income units, down the street from you, um, or you're planning on building your own project that's market rate, you're not super concerned about that. That's not competition um, in the same way. It, it has some impact probably because it's 
sort of drawing people out of other housing that, that puts more pressure on the market. But that's kind of my, my overall thinking is like, we've, we've stopped building housing for this low end and we just, our only strategy is to let it all kind of filter down. And the reality is that we're, we don't build enough for it to filter down. And a lot of places housing is actually filtering up or, you know, it's supposed to get actually, you know, the value is supposed to decline over time, at least of the structure. Um, but instead it's just getting up and up and up. And we see the right. places where you build a lot, the homes actually do get cheaper over time, even if they're not in like economically depressed areas. Um, the same home will, you know, on day one, go to a household earning the 80th or 90th percentile income. And 40 years later, it's going to someone earning the 60th or 50th. Um, but in Los Angeles and many, many cities, that's not what's happening. It's, you know, it's just remaining um, at those high levels um, and out of reach to many people because there's just not enough of it. So that's, that's the, the thinking of spending so much on it, exactly how it's done. I would love to see it be done outside of LIHTC, but I recognize um, my idea is like maybe just maintain LIHTC where it is and put all this additional funding in a separate, simpler program. Um, and that would be perfectly, I'd be perfectly happy with that. I'm good with that as long as they cap the, uh, the admin percentage. Uh, <laughs> it really is a, that's a topic that could go on for seven different episodes of, yeah. of this. Uh, but you also bring up, and I'm forgetting how you framed it, so I'm going to ask you to kind of walk me through it, but community development block grants, which are kind of like a utility tool uh, for communities, right? It, they have a kind of the least restricted use case mm -hmm. of a lot of mm -hmm. these. Uh, talk me through how that, your thought process is on how that can be used more efficiently and effectively for housing. I'm not sure I talk about community development block grants explicitly. No, I think not that I recall. Well, I'm going to have to do. I told you I power read this thing, so I'm going to have to go <laughs> back. Um, I'm sure I mention it just in talking about the HUD budget, maybe, but I'm yeah, not sure I, I have a specific proposal for it. No, there's um, no specific proposal. I'm just curious if you have like a specific thought process around how those dollars not from a policy proposal per se, but like, do you have a thought on their existing use and how they can be used better? It's okay if you don't, like I no, said. I yeah, I really, I really don't. I, I mean, I think they're, it's, it's nice in the same way that it would be nice to have something like LIHTC that's not so complicated. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a good thing to have funding that has flexibility. I do, you know, Again, I'm not an expert on, on CDBG at all, but uh, just following the way these things tend to work is it, it kind of reminds me of like the redevelopment program uh, or the redevelopment agencies we used to have in California where they were nominally for increasing economic activity and also a lot went toward affordable housing, um, but they just kind of many times would go toward just silly kind of entertainment stuff that had a de very debatable um, impact on the economy overall and whether it was like kind of paying for itself in the long run. So I think there's, there's a trade-off it's inherent when you give more flexibility that you're going to feel like some of it's wasted, but it's also how you get some really creative things that you, you know, something like LIHTC, you will never get, you will, you, you have, it's so prescribed yes. um, that you just don't have any create any options or flexibility and so I think affordable housing is such an important goal. We need to put more funding toward that and say like, it has to be meet these standards. And certainly there could even be more flexibility there. But I think having smaller pots of money that say like, we're gonna be kind of hands off with this and we wanna see what you do, sort of laboratories of democracy kind of idea. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's great as well. It's just, you can't let that be the whole thing because some places are gonna abuse it. <laughs> yes. Well, everything will get abused, Shane. Everything yes, will yes. get abused at some point in its existence. Um, so to, I want to spend an absurd amount of time talking about all the different programs and how to break them down. 
But I also want to spend a decent amount of the rest of this talking about how people can get started in advocacy, um, enhance their existing advocacy, uh, and just learn more about how important, because this really does, housing um, really is the most important thing to communities and probably just to people, um, right? Shelter is at the top of that list. And so it's not fun to talk about sometimes unless you're weird like us, but it is an important thing to talk about. And it's equally important to understand. And you put a, a pretty nice little appendix in your uh, book that helps people get a little bit of a primer on that. And I just wanted to talk about your thoughts on the priorities, mm-hmm. right? Like when people are starting to think about, well, what, what do I start learning about? Cause it shouldn't be LIHTC. I will throw that out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what do people need to know? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I should have thought about that more in, in detail. Um, I think the, the themes certainly are a good starting point. Just thinking through the fact that you, you can't have housing remain affordable at whatever price it might be right now, um, it will get more expensive if it is scarce. Um, That is inevitable. Um, That really is the foundation. And and I'll say, this book is trying to make a case that like, if you're the YIMBY pro housing development type person or the tenant union focused on, you know, tenant protections and evictions, either one is fine wherever you come from or nowhere at all, or from the affordable housing developer or advocate background, like it doesn't matter. Um, I came to it from supply and, and, you know, I say in the book, when I first came to housing policy, I thought like rent control is just bad, no matter what. Um, I thought it was really just, it could only um, do harm in the long run. And I still think that if you design it poorly, that's true. But that's really part of what motivated the book was just this recognition that like, if you take all of these concerns seriously and the design of the policies seriously, such that they work together, they can work together. So I think, you know, what I would recommend to to people is to seek out, you know, their local or state or whatever. Um, If they're, if they feel like they're more concerned with, um, with the supply side, or that's more the issue in their community, you know, reach out to the YIMBY group or the, you know, whatever it happens to be near you. If the tenant stuff, yes, yes, in my backyard. backyard. Yeah. Um, Like very developed here in in California, we have a statewide organization and many local ones, but I know that's not true everywhere. Um, And if your focus is more on tenants, you know, find a tenant union or or something along those lines. There are also, you know, groups that do, you know, legal counsel for people facing eviction, that kind of thing. And, you know, try to work with them and also try to bring that like, yes, and approach. Because really what motivated this book, maybe more than anything, was this frustration that among really just the entire uh, debate overall, it was, if you're pro-housing, if you're YIMBY, then you're anti-tenant. And if you're pro-tenant, then you're anti-YIMBY, anti-development. And that's just wrong. Like it's so counterproductive um, and it makes it so hard to accomplish either group's goals. And the fact is the groups want the same thing in the end. They have different focuses and as Mm -hmm. I say, that's perfectly fine to have a different focus. Different people have different strengths. I'm not like the show up with the bullhorn advocate. I might be in the crowd occasionally, but I'm much more comfortable like doing the research, doing the communication, that kind of stuff. Um, other people have different strengths and interests and that's okay. It's just a question of whether you can then take that next step and su- at the very least support or not stand in the way of the people doing kind of complementary work. And that's, that's really why I wanted to write the book as much as anything else to show like, look, you can be both. It is not this, you know, mutually exclusive thing where you can only be one or the other. It's possible to be both. And I strongly believe that they are stronger together 
not just because the policies are more effective, but because then you get the coalitions you need. Because, you know, NIMBYs, not in my backyard, homeowners who don't want to see any change, don't want to see low-income community uh, households in their community, they have the real power. And the pro-housing, the pro-tenant people, they are, you know, at least among organized and voting and donating to politicians, they are not very powerful, um, even combined. <laughs> they still have a ways to go. Um, and if we can say, yes, I support more housing, but I take seriously your concern that it might displace people and cause real harm. And so I want to address that. Um, and if the pro-tenant person can say, yes, I want to protect people from eviction and from the rents going up, but I recognize how if we aren't thoughtful about how we do those policies, we can affect the total supply of housing and the affordability of housing. And that's going to put more pressure on everyone, um, and including future generations who don't already benefit from existing protections. So that was really where this came from. And I think as long as people kind of keep an open mind about that and, you know, challenge other people around them that like, it's not either or, and it's not simple. Um, if there's any message it's of not this book, simple. it's that it is extremely complicated. And if you think you have the answer, you're wrong. It's just, it is too complicated. I constantly, you know, I wrote this book and I still, I'm like, do I still agree fully with what I wrote there? Like, I'm not really sure. And I'm not trying to be the final word on any of this. I'm really just trying to introduce people to a lot of different concepts um, and just the things that they should or might want to think about as they go through this process of, of learning or advocating or policy making. I think it's useful for, you know, whatever step of the way you're, you're in. I agree. And I think I will, before we kind of figure out where we can catch you, because you wear a bunch of other hats. So you wrote this book, but you also are doing some work in other regards as well. But the book the Affordable City is out on Island Press, and I believe it's out now. It technically, yes. recording, and it's out today, but this will come out next week, and it'll be available for you guys to purchase. Uh, and I'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes. But I think to to wrap that side of it up, you did an impressive job of taking an absurd amount of really heavy information and breaking it down um, into something that, while my parents might not fully still be able to understand it, <laughs> they could read the book and come away with some awareness. And that's a mm -hmm. pretty big thing yeah. when it comes to the complexity of affordable housing. So thank you, man, for, for taking the time to write a book on this topic and to, to frame it the way that you took the time to do. Um, thank you. It's very, very good. And as we wrap up here, how can people keep up with you, follow you, because what are your other jobs you have? You're not just uh, sitting here making gobs of cash, writing books about affordable <laughs> housing. No, I'm not sure anyone is. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, my, so my day job is as the housing initiative project manager at the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. Very, very long title. Um, but there we we do research um, and, you know, communications and events and, and everything on housing, transportation and jobs, basically. So, um, you know, pretty common set of three things. And I'm I'm like the staff person who works with the faculty on housing specific stuff. And so we were lucky enough to get a grant to fund this position just last year. So I've been there about a year trying to you know, create new research and, you know, in the vein of this book, not just kind of big scale uh, academic stuff, but more targeted policy interventions. You know, we had a recommendation for um, responding to COVID and targeting specific populations with rent assistance for reforming um, the rent stabilization program here in the city, because um, most of the conversation is about the statewide limitations and we tend to overlook the local stuff. Um, yeah, another thing that is on there is I, recently taught at USC as well um, as an adjunct instructor for a few semesters, but um, that was overwhelming on top of the full-time job and trying to organize this stuff. So taking a break from that for a bit, but those are my two. And then I guess the one other is uh, what I mentioned in my blog, betterinstitutions.com. Um, used to write there all the time, have less lately, but I think I'm getting a little more into it. And this book has given me an opportunity to kind of share some things there 
And I just posted a uh, sort of a four part excerpt um, where the first one is basically just, you know, an introduction to this concept of supply stability and subsidy and why all three are really important and, and worth prioritizing. And then the three that follow are excerpts from each of those three sections. Um, and they're all short, but I think they could give people a good idea of whether this is something that they'd be interested in reading further about. Very good. We'll link all that stuff in the show notes. And Shane, thank you very much, my friend. I'm excited to have gotten a chance to, to meet you and talk to you about this stuff. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks again to Shane and the fine folks at Island Press for offering listeners a 20% discount on the affordable city when they use the code Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, over at islandpress.org. We'll link to all that in the show notes. That's it for this episode. Again, I'm Jack Story, and thanks for listening. If you found this conversation to be worthy of your time, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss another episode. Take care and see you next time. (laughs) 